Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. Um, happy to be here from Vancouver, so greetings from the church in Vancouver. And uh, happy to be here with my wife, Carrie, and my mom and dad are actually here as well. Um, I uh, haven't spent much time in Chilliwack, uh, I have to admit, but I have come here before and gone bowling at the Chili Bowl. Um, so yeah, there you go. I had a great time. Um, so, and uh, but uh, I'm actually from Abbotsford. My my parents live in Abbotsford, and uh, Carrie's family has a place in Harrison. So we are coming through Chilliwack often, and so at least I can say I know how far Chilliwack is from Vancouver. Unlike most Vancouverites who think it's about a four-hour drive out here. Uh, where where are you going? Oh man, that's a far ways away. <laughs> um, so uh, really glad to be here. Um, friends with Matt. Matt and I are, uh, are good friends. I'm thrilled about his opportunity uh, with this church, and obviously I was thrilled when he invited me to come and share with you. So any friend of Matt's is a friend of, of mine as well, so I'm glad to be here. And um, yeah, I was, I was thinking of sharing some stories with you today, if that's okay. Uh, I thought Matt was going to be here, and so I had to be a little bit careful with what I said um, but I actually don't have to defend myself at all because Matt's at the Agassiz campus. So I thought I'd share a few stories uh, about Matt. And uh, one of my favorites is uh, a time when Matt and I were playing some music together. That was something that really uh, brought our friendship together was music. Um, and so we played in a Christian uh, worship band. And I was the lead guitarist and Matt was the, the lead singer. And I remember we were playing at this camp. Uh, and we were playing like outdoors. Uh, there was a bunch of youth... Uh, at this camp, and we were having a great time playing, and um, I think I was just playing some sort of a riff, and I looked away, and then I looked back, and all of a sudden, Matt had jumped into the crowd um, and uh, was doing some crowd surfing uh, amongst, the, amongst the youth, and eventually they, they put him down, and he, he came back to stage. So I just say that because, uh, you know, I just want to let you know that if Matt gets excited, he might just jump in the front row, so you guys just be ready another another sermon uh, sometime, because he'll do that. Uh, and um, I was also thinking about this other thing that Matt uh, would do that would just make me uh, laugh so hard, is we would go to a restaurant together, and uh, we would sit down, and the food would come, and Matt would do this thing where he would, he would stick his finger in the person's food and say, mm, that looks really good, um, and kind of like move his finger around in the food a little bit. Uh, the best was like when a burger came, because he would... He would stick his finger in the top of the burger and it would leave this big hole. And he would do it to us all the time. It would make me laugh, even to people that he didn't know very well, uh, which was even better. So anyways, there's a couple of stories about Matt, um, things that I just love about that guy. So, But anyways, uh, we are here to hear from the Lord and get into his word. So uh, we're going to be looking at John chapter 2. And I understand that you're in a series right now on the Gospel of John. And congratulations for getting through the first chapter of John. Right, like, um, but it's such a rich first chapter, isn't it? There's so much in there. It's like a musical uh, overture, which where there's these themes and ideas that John introduces us to, only to later in this gospel really start to expound on those things. It's such an incredible piece of scripture. And so last week, uh, Matt looked at the end of John, where Jesus um, invites the disciples to come and follow him. He says, you know, come and see what I'm about to do. If you believe in me, if you follow me, 
If you put your trust in me, I'm going to show you some amazing things. And we see in John 2 that Jesus wastes no time in delivering on that promise. The turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And we'll notice in John that there's a number of signs, these miracles that Jesus performs that are meant to point us towards something. It's meant to point us towards Jesus and what the kingdom of God looks like. These signs are kind of moments when heaven and earth collide and something truly amazing happens when there's a transforming power of God at work that just bursts into the world. And we're going to see that in this story to get today. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you open them to John 2, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 11 together. John 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we can read these stories, and even though they're familiar to us, you can break through and you can teach us something new. You can reveal yourself in a fresh way. So I just pray today, Lord, as we look at this, that you would do that. We just invite you here, Lord. We're here for you. We're here to, to, to listen to what you have to say to us, Lord. So come, Holy Spirit. Amen. So in the first few verses, we're told uh, that Jesus and his mother and the disciples have been invited to a wedding. Uh, and weddings in Jewish culture were um, similar to ours in that they were big celebrations, but different in that sometimes they would go on for a full week, a full week long of celebrations. So we're not sure when Jesus is arriving at this wedding, whether it's kind of at the beginning or the, or the midway through. We're not really know, we don't really know exactly when he arrives, but we do know that there's a problem. We know that the wine has run out. Uh, if you think about modern weddings, think about all the details that go into preparing for a wedding. Uh, the invitations getting sent out, the food, the drink. You always want to have enough for your guests, right? Carrie and I had the privilege of getting married in Hawaii, and that was great because it was a little less stressful, a little less details, although she would probably say that there was more details than I, than I know of. <laughs> but, um, you know, we still could see that, yeah, there's a lot of planning that goes into this. And I'm sure that many of you have experienced that as well. But there's this problem. They're running out of wine. And there's, there's, we're, we're, we see that there's something going on here. And Mary seems concerned about it, doesn't she? 
She comes to Jesus and she's kind of wondering what Jesus can do. You know, I, I was actually thinking about um, a modern wedding that I went to recently just last summer and uh, it was one of the best wedding receptions that I've ever been to solely for the fact that when I arrived they had a poutine bar set up. Um, it was amazing. So you arrive, you just kind of grab your fries and your gravy and your curds and you make this poutine. And I was thinking about um, how disappointed I would have been if the poutine bar had run out, right? <laughs> and maybe the groom and the bride would feel a little embarrassed about that. But we have to realize for, for the, uh, a wedding in this culture, to run out of wine would be actually a, a social disgrace. There would be a lot of shame involved. So it wasn't just inconvenient. This is a real problem that Mary recognizes and she says, something has to be done here. And we're not really sure why Mary feels um, like this. Maybe she actually had a part to play in this wedding. Uh, but she feels that something has to happen. And so what does she do? She turns to Jesus, her son, to help with this. So why? Why does she turn to Jesus? Well, it could be that you know, Jesus was her son and just, it was his responsibility to just take care of his mother, to, to help her out. That could have been the case, but we also have to remember that Mary knew some things about Jesus, didn't she? She knew that this wasn't just a normal son, that he was special. We're told that at a young age, Jesus was teaching in the temple with wisdom and with power. Right? Just imagine what it would be like to be a fly on the wall of Jesus and Mary and Joseph's home, to see the interaction between Jesus and Mary. I wonder if there was times when they didn't know what to do and, you know, maybe we should ask Jesus, the, you know, God in flesh. <laughs> you might know something about this. So, G so Mary has been seeing Jesus grow up and I'm wondering if this is a moment where sh she's really wanting Jesus to step in and do something miraculous. What's really interesting is Jesus' response to Mary. It's kind of strange. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. This is not the type of response that you would expect from a son to his mother. Right, Mom, if I were to say to you, if you said, hey, Ty, can you do the dishes? And I said, woman, what is this to me? It wouldn't be a very good thing, right? Um, <laughs> in the Greek, this phrase, uh, why do you involve me, uh, literally means what to me and to you. So this kind of sense of what, what does this have to do with me and you, this running out of wine. And there's Old Testament parallels of that same phrase. And in those um, parallels, it always conveys this distance between the two parties. Right? It carries this tone of disapproval. There's this tension that's going on. And I think this is telling us that there's a growing gulf happening between Jesus and Mary. And this really shouldn't surprise us too much. I think... Um, seeing that Jesus is God and thinking that he you know, is perfect, I guess I imagine that his family was perfect as well. Um, but in scripture, the gospel doesn't really allow us to think that. It tells us stories that kind of seem to think that there's some tension in the family. Um, a lack of understanding, even opposition between Jesus and his family. In Mark 3.20, we're told that Jesus' family wanted to take Jesus home because they thought he was crazy for the things that he was starting to do. We, can, we, we need to take him home. He's not right. And then there's in Matthew 12 when Mary and Jesus' brothers wish to speak to Jesus and then he responds by saying, who is my mother? 
And who are my brothers? And he points to his disciples and he says, Here are my mother, or here is my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. So we see that Jesus frequently makes the point that what matters most are not necessarily the family ties, those family relationships, but first and foremost, the restoration of human relationship to God. We see that Jesus, as he grows, starts to recognize that he's no longer under the authority of his mother, but the authority of his father, or the authority of God. And we see Jesus saying things like, I only do what the father asks me to do. He says that his hour has not yet come, and that's looking forward to the redemptive work of the cross, when that restoration of relationship between mankind and God would be fully accomplished in the, in the cross and ultimate resurrection of Jesus. And I, I kind of wonder also if Mary doesn't really understand what she's asking of Jesus here. Because Jesus knows that if he does this, if he steps out and provo- provides this miracle, He's going to be stepping onto a path that ultimately will lead to his death. He knows that if he does this, his life will never be the same again. So there's this tension going on here. But then in verse 5, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary seems to kind of respond to Jesus by saying, okay, you know, I trust you. Just do whatever... Do whatever he says. He, she doesn't argue with him or plead with him. She just let, lets that rest in Jesus' hands. I also wonder if Mary's love for neighbor here, her, her desire to want to save the bride and bridegroom from shame and disgrace moves the heart of, heart of Jesus here. We know that Jesus was fully God, but also fully man. And I wonder if in this moment, Mary's love for her neighbor moves the heart of Jesus, and who ultimately is grace and love. And so we see that Jesus says this one thing, why does this concern me? But then all of a sudden, he's acting, he's moving, he's stepped in to do something here. In verse 6, he says, uh, it says that there were these six stone water jars. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And then he tells them to draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And the master of the banquet tastes the water that now has been turned into wine. Jesus has done something here. This story, I think, what John is trying to tell us in this story is that Jesus is all about abundance and life in the new covenant. Jesus is giving us a visual demonstration of what this new covenant is looks like. We know that the old covenant, which was first made with Abraham and Sarah, had lost its power because the covenant had become trapped in all of these rituals and religious observance of the law. For the Jewish people, instead of living in the knowledge that they were one with God and that he was one with them, they tried to prove their value to him through this code of behavior that ultimately never could be kept. we see that there are these stone water jars that Jesus uses. And these were used for kind of ritual hand washing, um, purification required by the law in order to be clean before God, to be spiritually clean. 
So most likely at a Jewish wedding ceremony, this, these jars would have been used for, for washing, to, to become clean before Jesus, or before God, sorry. And John notes that there are six of them, which is also interesting, because in Scripture, numbers kind of sometimes correspond to certain ideas. And we know that the number seven um, symbolized perfection, completeness, right? Where six was deficiency, not quite seven. And so Jesus takes these six deficient stone water jars that kind of represented the old Jewish system, the old covenant, the old way of getting clean. He takes that and he makes something much deeper and richer and satisfying. He takes the old Jewish system and starts to do a new thing within it. He makes wine. Now, wine had a a special significance to the Jews. Uh, The Old Testament prophets who spoke to the people of Israel described a day in the future when God would bring his people back from captivity and restore them to the land that God had promised their forefathers. And the prophets referred to this as the Messianic Age, the time of the Messiah. And there's these passages, these Old Testament passages that symbolize these days through imagery like a wedding feast or abundance of food and wine. The prophets spoke of a time when the wine would flow freely. Let's just take a quick look at some of these passages. If you turn in your Bibles to Amos 9, 13 to 15. Amos 9, 13 to 15. We can read about these prophetic passages. It says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. And then in Joel 2:24, it says this, The threshing floors will be filled with grain and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. For anyone who had an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, they would see that what Jesus doing, is doing here is that he's ushering the, in this new messianic age, this age of fulfillment, abundance, joy, celebration in the new covenant of Christ. I often wondered how much wine Jesus actually made. Um, and we drink wine out of bottles, usually. So I was thinking, okay, what, what would that look like? We're given some information in this passage. And so if you crunch the numbers, you math whizzes out there, um, the total number of bottles of wine that Jesus made here was 907 bottles of wine. That's a party right there. 907. And we don't know how big this wedding was and such, but we are surprised at the number there. Jesus is showing us in this miracle that he can provide more than enough. But not only that, it's not only about the abundance, but it's also about the goodness that this new covenant brings in Jesus. Let's keep reading in verse 9. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, did not know where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom and said this, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine. 
after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. So this is not only abundant wine, this is good wine. Better than the wine that the guests had already been drinking. This wine that is run out is replaced with this amazing abundant wine that is good. And as a result, the party is able to continue. And I can imagine this shame and embarrassment that the bridal party saw coming is saved and is replaced with this joy that they could continue to celebrate with their guests. And the passage ends in verse 11, where Jesus says, uh, where John says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So remember, the disciples at this point have been called to follow Jesus, to put their trust in him. They don't fully understand who he is. And in this sign, it confirms that their initial inclination to want to follow Jesus was a good one, that this is indeed the Messiah. They get a glimpse of God's glory, and it renews their commitment to Jesus and leads them on this road of discipleship with Jesus. I feel the question that we need to ask ourselves as a result of this passage today is this. What kind of wine have you been drinking lately? And I don't mean red or white. What kind of wine have you been drinking? Is it the old wine? We're told that there's this wine that runs out, a wine that actually doesn't really satisfy. Are there ways in which you're still kind of living under this old covenant way of faith and belief where you feel that I'm not clean before God and I need to do this, this, and this in order for God to accept me. There's things that have happened in my life that I'm deeply embarrassed about and I can't imagine any God who would want to be with me. This is kind of the kind of thinking that I tend to actually gravitate towards quite often is this religious kind of spirit like I need to do this, this, and this in order to actually hear from God or to get his approval. Something that I struggle with, but I've been on a journey of discipleship and understanding of grace for the first time in my life, of understanding that actually Jesus is all about abundance and life. And he wants me and you to serve him out of that place of of recognizing what he has done in our lives and then letting that then lead to obedience. We love Jesus so much that we want to do what he says rather than just doing things in order to get his approval. So have you been drinking that kind of old wine? Are you kind of tired in your faith in your walk with God? Well, the good thing of this passage is that there's a new wine that Jesus is offering, a wine that nothing else can compare to, a wine that brings fulfillment, abundance, and joy, celebration. These are the things that Jesus is all about. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have problems in our life and we go through valleys and things that are difficult. That, that actually wouldn't be faithful to the scriptures either because Jesus tells us that there'll be struggles. But what this new wine does is it allows us to celebrate amidst the struggles in our lives, to know that God can do something powerful, that he can bring life out of those dark, dead places. Jesus wants to take away our shame and replace it with life, just like he did with that 
bride and groom. He gives them life. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So have you been enjoying your life with Jesus lately? And if you haven't, I want to say that that's okay, too. It's okay to be on a journey. And there's times when we, we need to come back to God and ask him for that new wine again. That's why we read scripture. That's why we look at these stories, to, to know that there is a God who loves us and that wants to be with us and pour his life into us. What I love about John is that you can read it one time and get you know, some good things out of it, but you go back again and you read it and then all of a sudden something jumps out that you'd never seen before. It's like a, a movie that you watch that the first time through you kind of get what it's about, but you kind of want to watch it again because you miss some things. I have to admit, I'm one of those guys that asks lots of questions during movies. Uh, there's like details that kind of I just don't get, so I think I drive Carrie crazy because I'm like, so that person is doing that, right? And she's just like, yes, Tyson, how do you not know this? <laughs> um, but yeah, there's, there's these details that we skip over and there is something about a couple of uh, characters in this story that I think um, can teach us a lot about what it means to be um, filled with this new wine, what this new wine looks like in our lives. And so that's the role of the servants in this story. So if you look at verses 7 and 8, I think there's some good things that come out of this. Verses uh, 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So the first thing Jesus asks of the servants is to fill the jars with water. Fill them up, right to the brim. Um, In Scripture, Words like fill or filled or full in the New Testament especially often refer to the Holy Spirit. When Jesus travels into the wilderness in Luke 4, we're told that he was full of the Spirit. On the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, we're told that the disciples were filled with the Spirit. Great men like Stephen and Barnabas, we're told, were full of the Spirit. In Ephesians 5, 18 to 19, Paul says this, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. So in this story, we see that the servants are first told to, to fill up, fill up the jars. And I think we as well can come to Jesus and ask him to fill us up again with his Spirit. And we know that the Holy Spirit has been lavishly poured on, out on us, like a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. There's more than enough. There's more than enough wine. It's a well that never runs dry. So we're called to come to Jesus to drink of this new wine, but for what? Is it just to be filled for ourselves? Well, in this story, it seems like it isn't, because the servant's are then asked to draw the wine or the water out and then take it to the master of the banquet. Notice that Jesus doesn't say to the servants, draw some out and then you know, just have some for yourself. He actually says, take it. Take it to the master of the banquet. 
share it with the wedding guests. So we're not only called to be filled with the Spirit, but we're also called to give it away. This abundant life-giving wine that Jesus provides is meant to be shared with one another. In Scripture, there's this very clear theme that those who have been redeemed by God have been blessed so that we can be a blessing to others in the world. Everything that we have received as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is to be given away. This is really the heart of discipleship, to recognize the good things that God has given us and then to pass those things on to others through action and word and deed. Romans 15.13 says this, it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. May he fill you so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not filled solely for ourselves, but that we would overflow into the lives of others in this world to share the goodness of God, the abundance of God, so that they can drink and also enjoy. Have you ever sought God for an answer to a prayer or something like that, that you know, something that you're going through in your life and you just kind of say, God, if you'd only speak to me in this, in this way, I would, just, I would just love to hear your voice. And we often can hear from God through his scripture or through prayer, that kind of thing. But I also think that we can hear from the Lord through each other in the way that we facilitate the spirit to one another where we pass on the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. We pass on some love and some joy, some peace, patience to one another. I believe that is an amazing privilege for us to know that we're not only filled for ourselves, but also for one another, and that God actually wants to use us to reveal himself in this world. I just want to end today by reading this quote um, by Cosmo Gordon Lang, which is, he was a former Archbishop of Canterbury. I think he puts this really beautifully. At Cana, the wine did not simply come, the water became it. That is the divine method. When Christ came, he did not come in a new order of being, he came in flesh as a man. It was this real and actual human nature that he made divine. We are to follow that divine method. We are to take the water of life as we find it and convert it into wine. Our lives and circumstances may seem incapable of fulfilling a divine purpose, but it is through these that the divine purpose is to be fulfilled. The artist, whatever his dreams and ideals of beauty may be, does not quarrel with the world and wait for another. He sets to work with the lines and colors that he finds and realizes his ideal through them. The Christian is the true artist of life. It is not so much to say that the main business of the Christian life is to go through the world, turning its water into wine. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we just wait on you now. Come and speak to us. 
Jesus, I thank you for this amazing story, the story of abundance and life, that we get a glimpse of who you are and how you created us to be as your people. God, I pray for the ways in which we are tempted to drink of the old wine, the the ways in which we uh, try to prove our love for you, the ways in which we just don't feel clean, that you would just come and that, just like the bride and the bridegroom, that you would cover our shame and our embarrassment through your grace. Jesus, I thank you that you have chosen us, that you have revealed yourself to us, and that out of that place we can respond to you with just love and thankfulness. Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit afresh, right to the brim, so that we may be a blessing to this world and we may be a blessing to one another. Jesus, I pray that like the servants who filled the jars and served the wine, that we would be filled, that we may draw and then take that love to the world. God, I pray that today as we leave, that something of, something of your spirit would bubble up in us in, in, a, in a way that we could share that with someone else, Lord. Something just really practical, a word of encouragement, a prayer, a hug after this service, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for the great privilege that you've invited us into in the restoration and redemption of this world. Amen.